I invite you now to join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word be our rule May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's hard to believe, but we are on week number six of a life of sanity in a world of vanity. It was hard to get started, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, but now that we're rolling, um, it's been a great encouragement to me and I hope to you as well. Twas the night before Christmas. My guess is most everyone, some people maybe, continued. Continued with that poem, uh, we think written by Clement C. Moore, published in 1823. He claimed that he wrote it in 1837 up in a newspaper in Troy, New York. Twas the night before Christmas. But what was the night before Christmas really like? Not according to a poem, but rather according to Scripture. Earlier we heard from Isaiah 9, the prophet spoke that there were people who walked in darkness. We heard the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, speak in Luke 1 of those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. You're walking in darkness You're sitting in darkness and it's like there's a shadow of death over people. The darkness of, among other things, injustice and oppression. The bookends of our text. We will see that the preacher Solomon begins with injustice and he ends this section with oppression. Last week when we looked at that poem about time, we saw Solomon speak of there being a time for everything, a purpose for everything under heaven. And indeed, as Paul writes the church in Galatia, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There was a time, the right time, the perfect time, the settled time for the Savior to arrive, for the Messiah to come on the scene. And our text that we're going to be looking at for the next few minutes this morning, I believe will help us better understand the night before the coming day of salvation, the time before the advent of the promised Messiah, the Savior, the one who was not only the suffering servant, but the one who was also the conquering king. 
Well, let's step back for a moment and just say a few things about Ecclesiastes, this Old Testament wisdom book, we believe, uh, written by Solomon. Let's uh, step back and see the big picture, the high altitude view once again. I believe that Ecclesiastes will help us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight. In this fallen world, a world full of sin and misery, a world full of frustration and futility, a world full of confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes will help us observe the world around us and ask better questions. And in doing so, it will help us distinguish between the temporary and the fading and the eternal, the lasting, and in doing so to live accordingly. Ecclesiastes presents the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. It wants us to see, to know that life without God is empty. And yet life with God is fulfilling. It is the way life is meant to be. Remember, we've been saying each week as we get going that we have to see Ecclesiastes through the lens of the New Testament And we remember that Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, tribulation, there will be vanity, but in me, you'll have peace, you'll have sanity. Ecclesiastes will, as Jesus said, help us to take heart, to take courage, to be of good cheer, because it will direct us not to ourselves, not to getting outward circumstances right It will rather direct us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who makes us sane when we come out of darkness into light, when we come to faith in Christ. He makes us sane. And also as his spirit dwells in us, as we grow in maturity, as we become more like our Savior, he keeps us sane. Remember how Solomon begins and ends this entire book. The prologue is all is vanity, not without meaning, but rather like a mist, a vapor, breath. It's fleeting, it's empty, it's here and it's gone. And you, it, as he says several times, it's like chasing the wind. You can't grasp it in your hands. And we saw at the end in the epilogue, he once again said, all is vanity. And yet we also saw at the end that he says, that Ecclesiastes will have words of pleasure, words of pain, words that will provide perspective. And what's that? Fear God and keep his commandments. And words that call us to prepare for death and judgment. Well, thus far, we've seen some observations under the sun. We've seen the setup for the longing of something new and lasting. We've seen Solomon head out on a quest He says, I've seen everything, and I'm a wise man. But we saw that the reader feels worse after reading his travelogue than than before. But that's good news because it's achieving its purpose to show us some of the vanity of life. We saw Solomon come up to bat and come up empty. He, he, he spoke of the avenues of pleasure, of wisdom and toil. He looked for a hedonistic life, a, a life of contemplation and an active life, and he came up empty. 
And last week, we asked the question, what time is it? And we saw through the poem and in the words that followed that it's time to recognize that control belongs to God and to rest content in the God who is in control, the God who cares. We saw that there is a time for everything, that God has made everything appropriate in its time. And he's put eternity in man's heart. We quoted C.S. Lewis saying that with this longing that we can't satisfy here on earth, it's as if we were made for another world. God has indeed put eternity in our hearts and that everything that God builds endures. God builds to last, in other words. Well, we come now to chapter 3, verse 16, and join with me as I read chapter 3, 16 through 4, verse 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring to... Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. We're going to frame our exploration of the text by using the preacher's statements, I saw, I said in my heart, and I thought. As he does throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher invites us to join him in his observations, in his thoughts, in his questions. So for those of you who may need an outline, it's his observations, his thoughts, and his questions. Let's take a look now at his observations, what he sees with his eyes. Remember, he's observing life under the sun. He says that twice in 3.16. He says it in 4.1. It's life at ground level. It's, it's life lived not in view of God. It's life lived not in view of God being the center of all things. It's looking, as it were, horizontally at the world, not what we are coming to see every now and then, a life, as it were, above the sun, God's perspective. And what does he see? 
He sees wickedness, first of all, in the form of injustice. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. He, he sees man's inhumanity to man. And, and where does he see this? Is it in the rough and tumble part of the neighborhood? Is it in the sketchy place across, uh, over the tracks? No, he sees this where there's supposed to be justice. He sees injustice in the very place you should expect justice. Where is that? In the law courts. You know, we, we, we see the statue outside courthouses of, of Lady Justice blindfolded with scales and a sword. But he goes, as it were, and he sees the civil authority and there's no justice. There's nothing more frustrating, I don't think, and discouraging than we see innocent people convicted and guilty people set free. You hear that expression, a miscarriage of justice. It's frustrating. Everybody, believer, unbeliever, has a sense of justice. They want justice to be done. Even the non-believer who suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness, he, he, he wants things to, to, to work out well and to be made right. He sees wickedness in the form of injustice, but not only that, he sees wickedness in the form of unrighteousness. He continues, even there was wickedness Oh, excuse me, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Where is he looking? He's looking in the house of God where there should be righteousness, there's unrighteousness. You know, Solomon, as it were, is looking at the civil and religious, but of course, in his time, it's kind of one and the same. Uh, Israel is a theocracy. But he sees wickedness, he sees injustice, he sees unrighteousness. Both the court of law, Solomon says, and, and the house of God are, are, are filled with evil people and thus there will be evil practices seen in the forms of injustice and unrighteousness. Well, then he continues and we need to skip down to verse 1 of chapter 4. He sees wickedness also in the form of oppression. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now this passage, verses 1 through 3, is as brief as it is painful. Let me read it again. And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's observing tyranny, the exploitation of the disadvantaged by those with power and influence. Now, it's really tempting to say, oh, those oppressive people 
that oppress God's people. But that's not what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about oppression within God's people. You know, the preacher here is sounding like one of the prophets. Men like Amos let justice roll. Men like Jeremiah who cried aloud for justice. You see, the preacher, his frustration is not simply that injustice is done. It's a fallen world. But that it goes unpunished. And this oppression is not abstract. It's it's not concrete. The systems are not impersonal, right? It's people. People hurt people. People oppress people. Now, there are systems that because they're built by people who oppress kind of have a built-in oppression to them as well. And the prophets rail all the time against God's people for failing to do justice, for failing to love kindness, to love mercy, and for failing to walk humbly with their God. Now, when you see the oppressed and the oppressors, uh, this is a conflict where God really does choose sides. Amos warned against people who oppress the poor. Ezekiel warned about extortion and stealing from foreigners. But you know what's happened because of sin? Not only are God's people the oppressed, but they are also the oppressors. You know, we are both, as sinners, we are both victims and perpetrators. We, 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 we are sinned against and we sin. We're, we're, this is life under the sun. It, it's a mess. The preacher is sounding like a prophet. Where is the comforter? Where is the one that can deal with this oppression? And, and, and why, people? Why are you oppressing? Why are you not doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God? You know, Micah, one of the minor prophets, it's a pretty short book, right? Imagine, imagine for a moment if, if God's people, through their heads-up display, of their windshield of life, Saul, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with their God. What stuff could be avoided and what stuff could be done by a people who have been shown what is good, by a people who know what God requires? But before we get totally discouraged by this portrayal of life, notice the first part of verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. You know, it's an echo of what he said in chapter 3, verse 12. Rejoicing in the work and the toil that God has given you. Another glimpse that light is dawning. 
Well, not only does the preacher observe life under the sun with his eyes, he also engages his mind by applying what he already knows to what he sees, and he attempts to work things out. And so after we've uh, looked at his observations, let's now spend a few moments thinking about his thoughts, what he thinks with his mind, what he considers. Go back to verse 17. I said in my heart, or I thought, God will judge. Remember his poem, God ordains whatever occurs on earth. There's a time for this and a time for that, including, as the prophet Joel would make very clear, there is a day of judgment coming. A day of the Lord coming. Solomon is doing what preachers and pastors should do applying their own sermons to his own heart. He consoles himself that there there must be a time for justice. I see all this injustice. There's a time to be born and a time to die, all the way down to a time of war and a time to peace. There's got to be a time for justice. More about that in a little bit. And he also said, as we see continuing into verses 18 and 19, he says to his heart, God is testing. God is exposing man. That time is the arena in which God tests his people. The delay between this is wrong and messed up, when is it going to be made right? The delay is for us to learn the truth about who we are. This delay, our present existence before the day of the Lord, before the day of judgment, is proving ground. It's exposing us. What do we believe? Who do we trust? I was reading in the book, uh, The Reason for God, the other day that trusting in a God of vengeance, trusting that there is a God who will make things right in the end, enables us to not take vengeance, enables us to not retaliate. Why? Because we're trusting in a God who who will make all things right. You know, it's interesting, and if you believe in a God that doesn't judge, a God that won't exact vengeance, then you just put the sword in your own hand. But if you believe that God will right all wrongs, and the scales of justice will finally work out, then we can indeed entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly as we follow Jesus. So what are you doing today in this time of delay as you await the day of God's judgment? He also is thinking man has no advantage. Look at verse 19. All is vanity. Earlier in chapter 2, we talked about the wise and the fools both die. So what advantage is there in wisdom? And here he's saying Man and animals both die. He's he's highlighting the mortality, the flesh. Man has no advantage over the beast. 
He's echoing Genesis 3.19, the fall of man into sin, the curse, and from dust you came and from to dust you will return. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Here we see it in Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. He just slips that in. Meaninglessness. Not without meaning, but how do you grasp it? How do you lay hold of it? If we're no better than animals, what is life all about? Now, of course, Solomon knows. It's not that man is not created in the image of God and the highest of all God's creations. It's he's, he's just making some observations as he observes life. And he's connecting dots. And he's going to be asking some questions. But given what he says in chapter 4, that there's oppression and there is no one to comfort, listen to his thoughts as we eavesdrop on the preacher. What does he say in view of the plight of the oppressed? He speculates that the dead and the unborn are better off. If that doesn't shock you, that here we have Solomon, wise, King Solomon, saying it's better to be dead and it's even better to have not been born. But he's not the only one that said that. Think about Jonah. He wanted to die. Elijah. There's no one else for God. Leave me alone. Let me die. There's Job. I wish cursed is the day I was born. Jeremiah. He's got some good company. As these men of God, these men called by God, looked around, looked at their own life and said, is death, could death be better than life? You know, the bitter fact of of oppression we see in verse one, it leads to this lament of verses two and three. And, and, And the problem is there's no comfort There's no one that seems to understand and come alongside. You know, under this darkness of oppression, Solomon says that non-existence, whether already dead or not yet alive, is preferable to existence. And this is his conclusion when he surveys the world around him. was the night before Christmas and it was dark indeed. In addition to his observations and thoughts, the preacher we see raises a few questions. Let's take a look for a moment about at his questions that he asked himself and others. Look at verse 21. After he's looking at men and animals and saying from the dust and to the dust I'll return. He says this, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Who knows? In other words, what happens to the soul of man? What happens to the life of man after 
He returns to the dust. And the sense of who knows, it's who comprehends, who can understand completely. Here Solomon is, 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 is standing agnostic. I don't know, he says. Faith, faith is needed in a situation like this. Who knows? But he comes on and continues when he says this in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. A bit of good news or consolation at best. But then he says, who can bring him to see what will be after him? It's another question he's asking. What happens after death? An early church father said, Ecclesiastes, instructing us through enigmas, guides us to the other life. It's mysterious. It's difficult. He's wrestling with things he can't yet see. But he's asking questions. And these are important questions. These are crucial questions. These are, in the words of this book that we give out to folks, in this book that we've got in our mini free pantry, ultimate questions. Solomon is asking about life and death and what is beyond this life. Is there more to this life than these eyes alone can see? He is saying. The preacher asks questions, but God's word, of course, offers answers. My friends, we know more than Solomon. We know more than Solomon. Should that lead to boasting? Absolutely not. It should lead to thanksgiving. God has placed all of us who are breathing here today at a different time in redemptive history. The answers that Solomon was asking, the answers have been provided. Because in Scripture, in God's Word, we can ask the one who has been through death and reached the other side. Let's eavesdrop on Paul's letter to Timothy. He speaks of the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have time to unpack everything. Turn with me to John's Gospel. If you're ever asked to speak at a funeral, if you're ever asked to give a few words at a relative's time of death, of passing, um, John 11 is a great passage uh, to go to. Uh, remember, Jesus is friends with Martha and Mary and they have a brother, Lazarus, and he's sick. And they want him to visit and Jesus delays. Lazarus dies. Join with me in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, who's, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus doesn't offer a lecture on life after death. Jesus doesn't draw on a whiteboard kind of the biology and the physics involved in, you know, dead brains and dead hearts being brought to life. Jesus says in terms of life and life after death, it's through me. I am the resurrection and the life. The thief came to steal, to kill, and destroy, Jesus says, but I came that you would have life and life abundantly. In our series in 1 John a few years ago, we remember the John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Life that's unending. Life that is the way it's supposed to be through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who has died and through his resurrection has come out the other side and has defeated death and freed those who have been enslaved to the fear of death. We'll hear in Ecclesiastes another sad aspect of earthly life has been exposed. Not just frustration, although it's there, but this reign of evil and evil in its hideous form of cruelty, oppression. Oppression. You know, here we acknowledge that Christians can see further ahead than Solomon while at the same time acknowledging the realities of injustice, of unrighteousness, of oppression. Well, Jesus came into a world of injustice and oppression. And Jesus also suffered. And where do we see a, a, a prime example of his suffering? Is it on the cross? Yes. But how about in a court of law? How about in the house of God? You see, Jesus' trial was before unrighteous religious leaders. And Jesus' trial was before an unjust Roman court of law. And yet, through his death and through his resurrection, what do we see now in Jesus? 
we see an uncorrupted place of justice. And we see an uncorrupted place of righteousness. You see, Jesus, at God's appointment, really is the chief justice. See, we don't need really a just system as much as we need a chief justice. Remember in our series in Acts, remember Paul is on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and he says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Judge the world in righteousness. My friends, there is going to be justice and there is going to be righteousness. And it's in Jesus. Because you see, the night before Christmas was a time of injustice and oppression. It was a time of darkness. When Jesus began his public ministry, he pulled out a scroll from the prophet Isaiah and he read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As I mentioned earlier, we are slaves to sin until Jesus frees us. And so not only are we oppressed, but we oppress others. Thanks be to God that Jesus not only took upon this mission, but accomplished this mission. Because you see, the good news of the gospel is that for those who have walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. For those who have sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, they have been given light. My friends, by grace through faith, we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The one whom Solomon could only look forward to. He has come, and he will come again. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, help us as individuals, as families, as friends, and as a church through your enabling power to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you, our God. Oh, Father, we thank you that the darkness of this sinful and fallen world has been shattered by the arrival of your grace and glory in Jesus. And so, Father, help us today as we do justice, as we love kindness, and as we walk humbly with you, help us to do that in the light 
that Jesus brings his people. For we pray in his name. Amen.